Good evening, everyone. My name is Penny, and the second Bible reading for this evening is Revelation chapter twenty-one, verse nine to verse twenty-seven. It should be on page one thousand two hundred and six. One of the seven angels, who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and said to me, "Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb." And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with twelve gates, and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of, of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be twelve thousand stadia in length, and as wide and high as its long. He measured its wall, and it was one hundred forty-four cubits thick by man's measurement. Which the angels was using, the wall was made of jasper, and the city, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sorry the the sixth Caninian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the lamp is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be bright into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Discuss words. Well, friends,、um, uh, take a moment, turn around, welcome each other, but grab an outline. You'll you'll need it tonight. There there is a lot we'll cover tonight. Uh, you'll need an outline and you'll need a Bible, so keep your Bibles open at、uh, Revelation ch- chapter 21. Okay, we'll make a start. So hopefully you've got an outline and keep the Bible open. Your Bibles open at Revelation 21. 
Okay, now let's, let's pray. I'll say a quick prayer and then we'll have a look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of the Bible and for the glimpse of the future that you allow us to see. And so we pray, Lord, that tonight we'll see what that might be and the difference it should make to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to start off like every week with a question, and that is, how would you like to die? How would you like to die? What a strange question. I mean, you go to church to feel good, not think about death, but I'll ask it anyway. How would you like to die? Now, of course, what I mean by this is not go and think about death and go and die. No, please don't. But what I mean by this question is, what sense, what mood, what feeling would you like to die with? What sense of achievement would you like to die with? Now, I'm sure this is perhaps true for most of us, if not all of us, that we would all want to die with a sense of achievement, that I've done my best. We would all want to die with a a sense of fulfilment, that I've done all I can. And I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, want to die with a sense that I have finished my race, I've done it well. But the sad reality is that for many people who are facing death, many people who are at that end, when they look back on their life, when they face the end, when they face the past of their life, Many people, in fact, die with a sense of regret, a deep sense of regret. I should have done things differently. Many people, in fact, die with a deep sense of despair. I should have done more. Now, there's a nurse by the name of Bronnie Ware. She was a palliative care nurse and she spent a lot of time with people dying who were facing death. And one of the things that that affected her patients most was this deep, strong sense of regret. And you can actually understand why. Just imagine, you are old, the end is near, and you've got a deep and strong sense of regret. I mean, you're old, you can't do much else. You're weak, you can't do much else. And so this sense of regret actually makes death worse. And so this this nurse, she wrote a book, And she noted in her book the top five regrets of the dying. And these are the top five. Number one, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. This is the number one regret. Number two, I wish I didn't work so hard. Good reminder to many of us who are working very hard now. Number three, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. Boys, young men and older men, we have feelings. You can express it. Feel free to. Number four, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Number five, I wish I had let myself be happier. Now, when you think about this list of regrets, the regrets, the top five of the dying, it's actually quite sad, isn't it? quite depressing. Terrible, isn't it, to die with these regrets? I mean, I don't want to die with any of these regrets and I'm sure you don't as well. But you see, when we come to the end of our life, whenever that is, there is in fact something far worse than dying with these regrets. 
There's actually something far worse as, as we come to the end and we look on our past. We face backward on our whole life and we see all our regrets. There's in fact something worse than that. You know what that is? When you come to the end and you face the future. You face the future and you're filled with some, some deep sense of uncertainty. You're filled with doubt. Where am I going? You see, that's actually worse. You face back, you see your regrets. That is terrible to die with those regrets. But then at the end, and you face forward and you're filled with a deep sense of doubt, uncertainty of where you'll be going. That is far worse. That is far worse. And that's simply because death is not the end. You see, death is not the end. We don't just disappear when we die. We don't disappear into thin air. There is more after this life. So that's what we'll be focusing on today. We're looking at history's end. And so this is part of our 10-week series. We've finally come to the end. History's end, the new creation. And so what will be fitting as we look at the last of our series is we quickly recap all that we've done so far. So we're going to look at the new creation to the first creation to the new creation and where we've come and why this is important for us today. And so remember the theme we've been thinking about, the kingdom of God theme, as we've been tracing that theme throughout these 10 weeks. And the kingdom of God, when we talk about that, we're talking about God's people in God's place under God's rule. And as we read the whole Bible and as we heard what Pete said before, all roads point to Christ. And so we're meant to see the whole Bible, one book, about one ultimate subject by one ultimate author, and that is God's plan of salvation through his son Jesus. And so your outlines on the back, that's for you for com- complete, completeness, but where have we come from? So the first week, everyone remember that? What did we look at? Creation. Remember that? The pattern of the kingdom that was set and established there. The pattern of the kingdom. That was how life was meant to be. But then very shortly after that, we had the four. Adam and Eve. They dethroned God. They wanted to take the place of God in making decisions. And so we had the perish kingdom. And then into the mess of this world, this terrible mess, what did God do? God spoke his promise. He picked, up one, picked out one man, Abraham. And so there we got a glimpse of the promised kingdom. And then, a couple of hundred years later, at the time of Moses, God delivered his people out of Egypt on the way to the promised land that God promised them. God gave them the law to live by. And when they got to the land, God gave them kings to rule over them. And there we got a glimpse of the kingdom of God. It was the partial kingdom. So the land, the law, the kings, and that's the partial kingdom. And then after that, we come into the period of the prophets. The prophets' role was to warn the people of God, to come back to God. Don't, don't follow these idols and these false gods. If you do, you'll be kicked out of the land. You'll lose all the blessings. And so what happened? Well, they didn't listen. They were exiled. They were kicked out of the land. It seemed like the kingdom of God was nowhere to be seen. The people were scattered. They were not in the land and they were under foreign rule. But despite that, the prophets spoke the promises of God in even bigger ways. Despite not experiencing the kingdom of God, God, through the prophets, promised of greater things. And so that was the prophesied kingdom. And then we come to the New Testament. Finally, the king arrives. 
the new Israel, the new Adam, the temple of God, the kingdom was present in the life of Jesus as he proclaimed the kingdom. Remember that? So we're trying to see that this is one whole story. Then after the coming of Jesus, at the end of his life, what happened? But this is the centre of the gospel, the centre of human history, the death of Jesus. And that was where the kingdom was in fact established. The kingdom was established as Jesus was crowned on the cross. And then last week, remember that? We looked at the resurrection. The kingdom inaugurated. Jesus was raised life to rule and to reign as king forever. And now today, so we're in the period between the resurrection and the topic we're looking at today. Today, we look at the new creation. When Christ will return, the kingdom will finally be consummated, the kingdom will finally be perfected. And this is where all history is headed. So what this actually shows us is that history has a purpose. It is going somewhere. It is going towards God's new creation. And so that's what we'll be focusing on today. So open up your Bibles, Revelation 21. We'll work through most of this in, in a different order so we won't go from verse through verse by verse. So you'll need your Bibles. So in this chapter, what we get here is the Apostle John is given a glimpse of the future. God gives him an, an insight on what the future will look like. And so as we read this chapter, we ourselves, we get a glimpse into the future as well. In fact, we get a glimpse into our future as we read in on what John saw. And this is the future God was planning throughout all human history. This is the future that God was moving towards throughout all human history. And this is the future at which God will fulfil all the promises about the kingdom of God. And so, as we're thinking about this chapter, and as we're thinking about the future, we're thinking kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. What would that look like then? And so firstly, let's consider God's place. Where is this kingdom of God? Well, in this chapter, what we see is that the kingdom of God refers to heaven itself. And so when you think about heaven, when, when you consider heaven, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Often for many people, the, thing that, the, the things that come to mind are, are clouds, angels, halos, playing harps, paradise, utopia. What are the things that come to your mind when you think about heaven? Now, of course, there are many different ideas of heaven. Many people have different thoughts. What does the Bible say? Well, before that, let, listen to what this guy says. David Lloyd George. He was Prime Minister of England in the early 1900s. This was what he said. When I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where, the, where, where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. Is it that bad, the Sunday service? And he goes on to say, the conventional heaven with its angels perpetually singing nearly drove me mad in my youth. So, so what comes to your mind when you think about heaven? Sunday services forever and ever and ever with angels singing, with you singing? Is that heaven? What is heaven like? Well, we'll look at this chapter. Well, here we see a few things. Firstly, we see that this heaven that God will bring about, it is new. It is new. Have a look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And so what we're told here in the very first verse is that there will be a new creation, a new heaven. It will be brand new. Heaven here refers to the skies. Earth here refers to the earth, the land. There will be a new heaven, new sky, new earth. The old will be gone, completely gone. And so what is in existence now? It will be no more. It will all pass away. And so when you consider this verse, you can actually see why it's such a foolish thing to store up treasures on earth, to build your empire, your kingdom on earth, because that will all pass away. And so the world as it is, in its decay, in its corruption, in its darkness, in its heinous crime, the old way of life will pass away when heaven comes, when this new creation comes. And you also notice at the end of that verse, there will be no sea. Now, is this, this bad news for the surfers amongst you? I mean, is this bad news for the beach lovers? <laughs> we'll make a fake one. Well, you see, it, not exactly that. It, the, the sea... The, uh, the sea throughout the Old Testament actually represents chaos and disorder, in fact, evil itself. And so when you go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, before God brought in order, there was chaos. There was the waters and the deep and they were disordered. And then when we come to the very last book in Revelation, earlier in, the, in this book, you read of this beast, this evil beast that comes out from the sea. And so... What John is saying here, there will be no sea, he's actually saying in heaven there will be no chaos, no disorder, no evil at all. All that will be a thing of the past. And God says this so, says so himself. Look at verse 5 now. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. God himself says so. He's going to make all things new. This is what heaven is like. God says so, and so this is what heaven will be like. And so the first thing we see here, heaven, it's new. It will be brand new. This old way of life, this old world will be gone. Secondly, we actually see here through this chapter, and that is heaven is beautiful. It is glorious. The angel, he sort of takes John on a journey around heaven in this chapter and he shows him all these things in heaven. And so we read some of this here. Verse 10, have a look with me. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. You see here, John's trying to describe the glory, the beauty of what heaven is like. And he uses description, it's like, like a jasper. Now, what John is trying to get us to sense here, he's trying to describe these indescribable things with earthly things. And so he's trying to get us to sense that what's in heaven is greater, is more glorious than what you can ever imagine. And then he continues on in this journey. The angel takes him around a bit more. Look at verse 18 now. The wall was made of jasper and a city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stones. And then it goes through all those big, heart-saying stones, which I won't say. And then verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. And what's the biggest pearl you've seen? So you see, he's trying to use earthly things to describe indescribable heavenly things. 
And then the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. So John is trying to give us a sense here that heaven is glorious, it is beautiful, it's better than anything you've seen or experienced. And if you think about the things you see and experience on earth, there are wonderful things. My greatest experience, my greatest experience of awe and wondering at God's creation was when I was up in the Swiss Alps. It was beautiful, magnificent. In a sense, John is trying to say that those experiences here on earth, nothing compared to heaven, better than those pristine beaches, better than the paradise in your imagination. Heaven is glorious. It is beautiful. Okay, so that's the second. It's new, it's beautiful, it's glorious. Now, thirdly, what makes heaven heaven is that it is where God is. What makes heaven heaven it is, is that it is where God is. You see, this is to remind us that heaven is not about stuff. Heaven is not about stuff. You know, often we get the idea that heaven is about me still. I get to enjoy all these wonders of God's creation. I get to enjoy the, the, the beaches, the mountains. I can enjoy the banquets, the feasts. We often think about heaven still, still, still about me. But you see, heaven is not about stuff. It's not about the gold or the jewels, but rather heaven is where God is. Heaven is about our relationship, a restored, a reconciled relationship with God himself, with our creator, with our father. And so have a look at verse 3 now. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You see, that was what the Israelites craved throughout their history. They wanted to be with God. They wanted God to stay with them. And in fact, this is what Christians or any person should crave and should want, that God will be with us. To be in the presence of God without any hint of guilt, any hint of shame, any hint of fear, that is wonderful and that is heaven. You see, to be in heaven is really to be in the very presence of God, to see God face to face. And that's why John says in this chapter that there was no temple in heaven. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple was the focal point of their life, of their community life. That was where you would go to meet with God, the temple. But in heaven, there will be no temple because God's presence is everywhere there. So have a look at verse 22. We see this. John says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and the Lamb is its lamp. You see, even the blazing light of our sun that shines on earth, that is no match for the glory of God. And you see how profound this is. Wherever you are in heaven... You are always in the presence of God. That, that is why there is no temple. And that is why, do you notice what the shape of heaven was described as? Do you see that in one of those verses? It's actually quite an odd shape coming down. It's shaped like a cube. Do you, do you notice that? Have a look at verse 9. The city was laid out like a square as long as it, as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. 
What type of city is shaped like a cube? That is strange. But you see, there's a reason for that. In the whole Bible, there's only one other cube that is described. And that, uh, only that, that cube is in fact the Holy of Holies, the, the inner sanctuary of the temple. It was the most sacred place. It was seen as the place where God dwelt. His presence was there. His glory was there. And that place, that cube, it was so sacred in the Old Testament that, that only the high priest could enter that sanctuary and only once a year on the Day of Atonement and only by the blood of, bull, the blood of bulls and goats. You see, that place was holy. That was where God dwelt. And so it's actually no accident here that heaven is shaped like a cube. Because to be in heaven is to be in the holy of holies, to be in the very presence of God himself. And so even if you were to go to the farthest reaches of heaven, you would still be in heaven, still in the presence of God. And so that's heaven. Remember, kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. We're looking at God's place. It is new. It is beautiful and it's glorious. And it's where God is. Now let's consider God's people. Who are the people who will be part of God's kingdom? Who will they be? Well, here in this chapter, there, there is no ambiguity at all. The only kind of people you'll see in heaven, the only type of people you'll see in heaven, are those who belong to God. We're told in this chapter they are, they are the ones who thirst. Have a look at verse 6, the second part of verse 6. To him who is thirsty... I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I'll be his God and he'll be my son. You see, those who thirst, we actually understand this from the gospel, those who thirst are those who believe in Jesus. It should remind us of what the Apostle John wrote in his other book, the gospel. In John chapter 7, Jesus says this, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes, that is, those who are thirsty are those who believe, in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Those who will be in heaven are those who believe in Jesus. As simple as that. Those who will be in heaven are those who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus. And then at the end of this chapter, verse 27, those who will be in heaven have their names written in the Lamb's book of life those who allow Jesus to be their sacrificial lamb. And so the people who will be in heaven, they're the Christians. Really as simple as that. The disciples of Jesus, those who say, I will carry my cross after you. Those in this life who submit to Jesus as Lord, King and Saviour. And so what this therefore means, if if there are only Christians in heaven, what this means is that, Not everyone will get to be in the kingdom of God. Not everyone will get to enter heaven. Not everyone will be in the presence of God. And if you think about that, that is hard to accept. That is hard to accept. If you understand that, what that means is that there are only two groups of people. There are those who are in and there are those who are out. And of course, a lot of people take offence at this. Even Christian ministers there's a guy by the name of Rob Bell. He's an American pastor. In his book, Love Wins, this is what he he said. Has God created millions of people over tens of thousands of years who are going to spend eternity in anguish? 
Can God do this or even allow this and still claim to be a loving God? Does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite, eternal torment for the things they did in their few finite years of life? It's hard to believe, isn't it? You can understand why he would say such a thing. Only two groups of people, those who are in and those who are out. But what does the Bible say? Do we listen to him or do we listen to God? Look at verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. See, that's the reality. As hard as it is to talk about the things of hell, as frightening as it is to talk about these things, this is the reality. This is the end. The Christians, they die once, but they get to live twice. First time here, second time in heaven. Those who don't believe, the unbelievers, well, in a sense, they live once here on earth, but they die twice. The second death. Hard to believe. Hard to accept. And, of course, not, not many, in fact, believe the reality of hell itself. Quite, quite a lot of people are, in fact, just blasé about the reality of hell. I wonder if you've come across anyone who, who, who said to you, How's, how, how can't be that bad? I mean, it really can't be that bad. I'll be there with my mates. We'll have barbecues all day. It's hot enough. Have you heard anyone talk about hell in that way to you? Well, if there are, it's because they don't really understand the reality and the torment of hell. Now, people try to describe hell in different ways, but I found a story. It's an attempt to describe the indescribable. It's from a book called um, A Fresh Start by John Chapman and it goes like this. He had never felt such aloneness before. Where is my wife? He choked. Only an awful echo. Not here. Your wife is not here. He tried to piece it all together but the darkness was too thick. Once in a while he thought he could see a blurred figure or hear an anguished moan. He remembered the pain, those last few moments of terror, but it was nothing compared to the feelings that were creeping into his awareness now. Again he cried, Where is my wife? Your wife is not here. Where are my children? Your children are not here. And so he started to grope about in the darkness, but all was blindness. My God, he howled again, let me feel the presence of one single human being. My God, he hasn't said those words in such a long time. My God, and now they seem so hollow. So terror was welling up in him. He felt like a small child being threatened by deep darkness. No candles anywhere, no love anywhere. No voice anywhere. Where is my wife? He screamed. Your wife is not here. Where are my children? He pleaded. Your children are not here. But the greatest fear of all came to his mind. He was terrified to ask, but he knew he would have to. 
His whole body trembled as he pursed his lips and wailed into the nebulous night. He said, Where? Oh, where is God? As the deepest of all darkness closed in on his soul for all eternity, he heard that heinous echo whispering that most horrifying of all judgments. God is not here. Just imagine that. That was one of the best stories I've found, trying to describe the reality of hell, the torment, the despair of being in hell. It would be unbearable. Not me and my mates enjoying a barbecue at all. And if you think about it, even if you're in hell and you want to end your life, you want it all to end, you can't. It was already the second death. And so on the other side, who are the people who will enjoy heaven, who will be part of the kingdom of God? Well, they're the people of God. The people of God, the Christians, those who in this life confess and submit their lives to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And so we've looked at God's place, we've looked at God's people. Now what about God's rule? How will God's rule look like? What will God's blessings look like? Well, here we get a glimpse of a world so unlike our own. All the pain and agony and fears and hurts and tears and wars and heartache and death itself. They will all be a thing of the past. Have a look at verse 4. Wonderful verse. Comforting verse. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is God wiping our tears. They will be, there will be no more death. You see, this is the end of death itself. No more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I mean, this is the eternal bliss of heaven. The glory, the joy, the satisfaction that awaits all those who belong to God. But there's even more than that. You see, there's a glimpse here of a return to Eden. A return to what Adam and Eve should have enjoyed but didn't. Listen now to how John paints this scene. I want you now to look at chapter 22. We'll read a few of these verses. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city of, street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Remember the tree of life? That was what Adam and Eve had access to. But they foolishly rather went for the other tree. They were bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. I mean, this is the prayer Chris prays after each service. We will see God's face face to face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a wonderful picture of what awaits those who believe in Jesus. This is the blessing that awaits those who believe in Jesus. They will reign. We will reign with God forever and ever. This is God's rule. Perfect blessing that goes on forever and ever. The joys and happiness of our lives now. Just think about that. The joys of your life now. The things that, that gives you so much excitement and happiness. I can think of 
quite a few in my life. God has been very good to me and my family. Our wedding day, the kids being born, the friends and the family and being part of this church, great joy to my heart. But you look at the picture of heaven. A second in heaven will make all those joys and happiness seem so small. Just one second in heaven. That is how good it is being in the kingdom of God forever and ever, enjoying the blessings of God forever and ever, being in the presence of God, seeing him face to face forever and ever. That is heaven. That is heaven. And so if this is God's plan for all creation, this is the plan and purpose of God from all history. This is where everything is heading, towards the new creation. If you think about that, if that is what awaits us, then two things, at least, but two things. You live differently because of us. You live differently because of it, don't you? And secondly, you actually die differently as well. If heaven is true, and that is how good it is, you live differently and you die differently. Firstly, you live differently. See, when we come to the end of our life, whenever that is and however long God grants us, when we come to the end of our life and we face our past, we look back on our life and all that we've done. You don't want to come to the end and, and have a, a life then filled with regrets, do you? You don't want that. You want a, a life where you can look back and, and see there are, there are no regrets. I mean, what might those things be? What might we regret at the end of our life? I regret not studying enough. Anyone would, would anyone regret that? I regret not working hard enough. I regret not working that Sunday that, that 40 years ago. I regret not making enough money. Do you think they're the things you'll regret by the end of your life? I suspect not. I suspect these are the things we'll regret. I regret I didn't invest enough in the kingdom of God. I would regret that I only stored up treasures on earth and I've got nothing now to take with me. I would regret that I didn't wisely spend my time. I didn't wisely spend my efforts, my resources, my money, my gifts for the glory of God. They're the things I will regret. I regret that I didn't share the gospel of Christ with just one other soul. I would regret that. I would regret that I have wasted my life. Or I regret that I didn't really believe Jesus. They're the things that I regret. Now, the things that we strive for now, I'm not sure if we'll really regret those things at the end. Now, I wonder whether you've been to a, a funeral and you really felt that sitting in this funeral, the person who died did not waste their life. Have you experienced a funeral like that? You go to it, you hear all the eulogies and all that is said about the person who's passed away and you, you have a deep sense that this person did not waste their life. Now, I've been to quite a few funerals but I think it was just the first time that I felt that this year. In June this year, I went to the funeral of my sister-in-law's father. He was a Presbyterian minister here in Melbourne. Cancer ate away at his life. He wasn't a very old man, died in his 50s. But at this funeral, listening to my sister-in-law's eulogy, it was read by someone else. But when that was read, he was a man who never been on an overseas holiday. Never. 
never stepped foot on a plane and went overseas. Some of us would be thinking, what a wasted life. Never been on a plane overseas. Never purchased a house. You hear that, you think, what a wasted life. He didn't even buy a house to leave for his surviving wife. But you see, as the eulogy went on, this was a man who did not waste his life. He did not waste his life investing in the things that won't last. He was a man who loved the Lord wholeheartedly, served the Lord wholeheartedly, and he will reap his rewards in heaven. He will reap all his joys in heaven as those he's ministered to and brought to faith. They are his joy. First time I ever felt that sense. This was a man who did not waste his life. Now, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? He was a happy person, a funny person, a joyful person, a hardworking person, a family person, someone who's achieved so much. I mean, they're all good things. They're good things to hear. And they're good if they're true. I'd rather someone say this about me. He was a man who, who did not waste his life. He did not live for this world. He did not invest in this world. But he invested his life wholeheartedly to the kingdom of God. Now, if heaven awaits those who belong to him, if heaven awaits the people of God, you live differently now. You live differently now. But of course, you'll also die differently. And when we come to the end, whenever that is, and we face the future, the future beyond the grave, you don't want to be at that point filled with doubt, do you? you? You don't want to be at the point filled with uncertainty with what will happen, do you? You, know, you don't want to think, I don't know what's going to happen now. I know I'm going to die, but I, I have no idea what's going to happen on the other side of this. I'm uncertain whether I'll, I'll be in heaven. I'm uncertain whether I'll be okay with God. I, I'm uncertain whether I'll be alone or with those I love. I'm just... I just don't know. I mean, that is terrible, isn't it? To die with that doubt, to die with that uncertainty. You see, if heaven is what awaits the people of God, you die differently because you know you're not really dying at all. And so my first question today, how do you want to die? How do you want to die? Well, when I die, I want to die filled with hope, filled with peace, Filled with the sense that I've finished my race, I've done my lot for what God has set before me. Filled with the complete confidence that I will be with God in the kingdom of God. How do you want to die? Well, hopefully it's not a death filled with doubt. Hopefully it's not a death filled with regrets. Hopefully it will be a joyful claim, heaven, here I come, here I come. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your great mercy you have revealed things ahead of time. You have shown us a glimpse into the glory of heaven, the, the great privilege of it is to be with you, to see you face to face. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, for all of us here tonight that we will live differently in light of that and that when the time comes we will die differently in light of that. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.